Whatever the cause may be of a sleepless night, its effect can be pretty significant. Uh, recent studies have been done that indicate just from an economic standpoint, uh, the United States economy takes a $200 billion hit a year uh, because of our sleeplessness um, and the impact that that then has upon productivity, uh, cognitive and emotional thinking and f the ability just to, just to function is, uh, takes, takes a hit. Um, job performance and this, the ability to, to make decisions and just communicate well and hear well and speak well and, and all of that uh, it, it has an impact. Um, there was a study uh, done uh, upon, not by, but upon uh, Harvard doctors. So, you know, numbered among our best and brightest, right? And uh, it was found that after those doctors would attempt to pull a 24-hour shift, uh, what they found was, the study was a 36% increase in significant errors, a five-fold increase in serious medical misdiagnoses. So this is nothing to play with. I mean, this is, this is something significant. Uh, our sleeplessness, our weariness. The reality is, as significant and, and weighty as all that may, may be, there is a weariness that affects us and impacts us that is even more significant than just the physical side that I just spoke of. And that's a, a weariness of soul. A weariness of self, a weariness of, of spirit, a weariness of, of, of heart. Uh, and, and Jesus speaks to that uh, here in this text. Um, indeed, can I just say that the king has come indeed to bring us rest. This king who's come, who's coming, whose arrival, uh, his triumphal entry that we mark on this Palm Sunday has come to bring us rest. If you have a Bible, please turn with me to Matthew 11. Matthew chapter 11, we are pushing on progressively through this uh, series in the Gospel of Matthew. This is the first of the four Gospels that we have. It's the first book in the New Testament. Uh, it is the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, we are in Matthew 11, towards the very end of the 11th chapter. Uh, I'm going to be starting in verse 25 and reading on down through verse 30. Matthew chapter 11, starting in verse 25. Hear now the word of God. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me. All you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Well, would you pray with me? Jesus, uh, weariness impacts us in so many different levels. Restlessness, we feel that and, 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 and know that in, in so many different ways, and we, we seek out solace and relief uh, from that weariness and restlessness in so many different fashions. 
But ultimately, at the heart of it all, you are the rest that we seek. We ask that you would help us to see that, to believe that, to understand that, to, to live out of that in, 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 in real, applicable ways this morning. Uh, we ask that you would help us hear, hear these words of, of yours as you are, not just have spoken, but we understand in some mysterious way that you are speaking. Hear through the Scriptures. And we ask You to help us to hear. We pray in Your name. Amen. I want to read to you this uh, brief excerpt from a much longer interview from 1999, a Rolling Stone article, interview uh, with Brad Pitt by Chris Heath. And oddly enough, the topic of religion and spirituality came up and came up a lot in the course of, of that interview. Uh, Chris Heath uh, picks it up, I'm just kind of midway. There's one subject he refers to, he, Brad Pitt, refers to time and time again, and that is religion. I would call it oppression, he says, because it stifles any kind of personal individual freedom. I dealt with a lot of that, and my family would diametrically disagree with me on all of that. It's only when we later drift into an unlikely debate about one of the New Testament parables that I realize just how different a kind of God Pitt grew up with. To him, the parable of the prodigal son is an authoritarian tale to keep people in line. This, he explains, is a story which says if you go out and try to find your own voice, and find what works for you and what makes sense for you, and you are going to be destroyed and you will be humbled and you will not be alive again until you come home to the Father's ways. Well, here's the heartbreaking thing. Um, through the years, uh, Brad Pitt has oscillated, in his own words, between atheism and agnosticism, uh, though he grew up in a in a church context, I think it was even in Springfield, Missouri. Uh, if I had an opportunity to sit down with him, if I'd been there, I think many of you would share this. Uh, if you're hearing his words, you would want to just unpack a little bit more. Can we talk more about that parable and what that really means? Can we talk about the context of Luke 15 and how it is actually anything but an authoritarian tale meant to keep people in line? Can we talk just for a minute about how what you have articulated about what Christianity is is actually really not what true Christianity... I understand maybe it's what has been modeled for you and forced upon you, but in no way at all is it actually what it really is. And this morning, really, if that's where you are and how you're feeling in some way, then I'd want to kind of sit down and persuade you of something differently, too. Who is this king that comes riding in on that Palm Sunday? The crowds cry out, Hosanna, Hosanna, which actually means, loosely translated, Oh, save! Save! 
deliver us. What kind of Savior, what kind of King is He? Let me uh, tee up, if I, I may, um, the, the arc of what we see here in Matthew 11. Uh, the flow of events, as we've looked at here the last, last few weeks. Um, John the Baptist, locked away, is, is struggling with, with profound doubts. And Jesus responds to John's response to him with profound patience, tenderness, and compassion. Jesus also recognizes that there are many out there, and he lists the cities, we talked about this last week, uh, who are not uh, struggling in doubt. They are settled in their, their unbelief and their skepticism. And he responds to them with a warning. Still compassionate, actually. But it's a warning. And now we get to this point in the flow of, of the, 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 the narrative and the history. And uh, what we see is a shift in mood. It's as though Jesus has taken a, a step back from, from engaging with John and, and, and speaking to the crowds and to the masses. It's as though he takes a step back and takes it all in and is now praying to his Father and proclaiming something to all those who would have but ears to hear. And, and this is something astonishingly applicable. It's really, it wasn't like we planned this out, but it's just, this text and preaching on this passage fell here on this Palm Sunday. So it's astonishingly applicable to right where we are today in the, in the church calendar. What sort of king is this? This is a king who has come to bring us rest. This is a king who has come to bring us rest. Oh, that we would rejoice. Rejoice and not resist him. This king, this Jesus, has come to bring us rest in the deepest possible sense. Oh, that we would rejoice in that, receive him in that, and not resist him in what it is that he has come to bring. Especially when you consider these two points, these two things that come out in this text so plainly. One, his sovereign reign, and two, just what our deepest rest actually is. So his sovereign reign and our deepest rest, and actually the one leads into and allows for the other. So let's look at these in turn. First, his sovereign reign. What are we talking about there? Um, Jesus uh, makes some astonishing claims here. Now, now, I, I fear that you know, for some of us here, maybe this text is familiar to us, especially that that beautiful invitation. You know, come all you who are weary. It's just kind of like Ah, like this balm, like I just kind of sat in a warm bath and this is wonderful. It's just this, these words sweeping over me. We're not hearing. We are not hearing the astonishing level of the claims that Jesus is making about himself here. We're not grappling with how shocking what he is saying here. If, if you've got a sensation of a warm bath, it's more like a, a, a kettle of cold water thrown in your face, ice and all. Um, so we, we see here in Matthew 11 these astonishing claims that Jesus makes first about his father. Verse 25 and 26. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. Jesus is beginning here with this, this words of prayer, of, of praise and and adoration for his father. Why? The fact of, heavy word, heavy concept, the fact of election. 
That's what's eliciting this, this praise and wonder and adoration and worship from, from Jesus. His reckoning with and acknowledging fully and gladly the Father's choosing before the beginning of time who it was that the truth, the, the nature, the, the gospel news of the coming of the kingdom and the king, who that would be revealed to and who it would be concealed from. And he's saying it very plainly here. Now we ask, how can that be? How can it be that, that, that the Father would choose in that way, would act in that way to reveal to some and to conceal from others. Well, let's take a step back. Who is he? Who is he? Jesus gives us a clue just in, in a way he just, just refers to his Father as Lord of heaven and earth. Lord of heaven and earth. It, it's hard to, to think of a more exalted title than that. Um, of, of, of everything. Or as uh, we read in the Westminster Shorter Catechism, who is God? God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. That's who he is. So you might say he has the right as the prophets tell us, as a potter does with the clay to determine who he will reveal himself to and who he will conceal himself from. He has the right to say that those who approach me, thinking themselves to be wise and understanding, I will hide myself from. Yet those who will approach me with the hearts of children, open, and teachable and humble, I will reveal myself too. Astonishing claim that Jesus is making here about the Father. He doesn't stop there. He goes on to make an astonishing claim about himself as the Son in verse 27. Verse 27 where Jesus says, All things have been handed over to me. Did you catch that? All things have been handed over to to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. So Jesus is saying that the Father alone reveals and conceals, and he does this through the agency, the work of the Son, who alone has the power and authority to do that. There's really no way to get away from the implications of, of these words, however shocking, astonishing it may be to us. And Jesus is speaking here of the absolute necessity of his revealing of himself and ultimately of the Father uh, to us. It's there, but because there's an exclusiveness to his knowing. He says the only one, there's two categories here, the, the only ones who know my Father are me, and those to whom I choose to reveal my Father. That's it. Those are the only categories. Those are the only ways that we can, can know him is if he reveals himself to us. Now, how can this be? 
Well, again, who is he? Jesus has told us. He says it right there in verse 27. He has a unique authority, a, a role, a responsibility given unto him by the Father in the context of an eternal relationship, an exclusive relationship between the Father and the Son such that really, truly, they are really the only ones who know one another. And it's been like that, can I use this oxymoronic term, for eternity past and will be future. This exclusive relationship between the Father and the Son, and there's only one way we're going to be brought into that. The Son moving towards us. These are absolutely, to the degree we're hearing it, should strike us as astonishing, shocking claims. Again, speaking, though, to Jesus' sovereign reign. He is truly God, and he alone reveals God. He is truly God, and he alone reveals God. Um, I have something of, a, of an eclectic library, um, a significant part of that library, a lot of history. And in that subset, there are a lot of biographies of major historical figures. And, and now, I've never written any biographies, but from what I hear as to how this works, and I can see it in the footnotes and such of some of the figures that I've read about through the years, is that you know one of your best sources, prime source material on a historical figure, of course, are those who knew them well, who were close to them. So that might be co-workers, it might be associates, it might be friends, it might be family. Um, in particular, the offspring of that figure. They can see who that person really was. All the warts and everything. I mean, I, I watched a documentary just a few weeks ago on Winston Churchill. That certainly came out uh, in that context. Children have a way of just knowing Knowing their parents better, in some cases, better than the spouse actually does. Jesus, as the Son, is uniquely positioned to speak to who his Father actually is. And he is uniquely positioned to be the only one who actually can reveal his Father to us. That's what he's saying here. Now, I want to just uh, take on a couple of questions that, that tend to come up in, in verses like this, in passages like this, verses 25 and, uh, through 27. Um, just wrestle with this with you for, for a moment, if I can, and, and try and capture some of this. So, why is it, and Jesus may even be somewhat answering this question here um, intentionally, why is it that some respond so poorly to him? That's certainly what he's seeing. Is what we looked at last week, those, those villages, Chorazin and Bethsaida and Capernaum. Why, and, and why is it that so many are, respond so poorly to him? And there's a twofold answer to that, and it comes out here in this text, in the larger context of Matthew 11, in the whole context of the Bible. There's a twofold answer to this question as to why people then and now respond so poorly to him. Here's one answer to it, and it's true. It's their own fault. That's part of what he has told us here. That, that when we respond to him poorly in unbelief and skepticism, we are like, remember what we looked at last week, like spoiled children in a snit 
sulking because we didn't get our way and we're just incapable of being satisfied with anything. That's what Jesus presses into us. We looked at this last week. That's, that's part of the answer. But here's the other part of the answer that's just as true. Because God chooses who he reveals himself to and who he conceals himself from. It's not one or the other. It's both. In the mystery and majesty of his ways, it's both. In his sheer mercy before the beginning of time, he has determined to whom he will reveal himself and from whom he will conceal himself. And again, I just I cannot stress this more strongly. It is not one over against the other. It is both at the same time as a strand of testimony that you see Genesis to Revelation. Divine sovereignty and human accountability. It's not one or the other, it's both. Which then leads me to my next question. But isn't God unjust in denying this revealing to some? Or, put another way, isn't God unjust in concealing himself from some? And the simple answer to that question is no. It's not as though he is, is sitting up on the top of the mountain looking down on these faithful, dutiful hikers trying to make their way up to him and he keeps hitting the smite button blowing up the trails as they so desperately want to get to him. We are a race of rebels, sinful through and through left to ourselves hating him, wanting ultimately nothing to do with him. That's the, the, the diagnosis that we have here from him himself. And my goodness, you can see that just if you just stop at Matthew 11, the first 11 chapters, we get a pretty clear inkling of that. Or if you just want to read on through this week, don't stop with Palm Sunday, get to Good Friday. You see something of the bentness of our hearts in what happens on that cross. The wonder, the wonder of all this is not that um, none get less than they deserve, but that some by his grace actually get more. That's the wonder. That's the wonder. We give ourselves a bit too much credit. The king has come to give us rest. Oh, that we would rejoice in the rest that he brings and in what he reveals of himself and how he reveals himself to us. Rest in that, receive that, rejoice in that, and not resist it. Which then takes me, though, to that second point. Okay, so... His sovereign rule is the only thing that can allow from and ensure our deepest rest. If his was not a sovereign rule, our rest would be at a shallow level at, at the best. But it is not as the deepest imaginable. Let's look at what he says here. Again, astonishing claims. Hear what he's saying, starting at verse 28. Come to me, 
All you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus is saying, again, hear what he's saying. He has come to free us from something. And, and he tells us actually pretty clearly what that is, uh, of a form of labor, a striving, a, a struggling to be and to do more than we have been or wanted to, 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 to win God's approval, to earn a place, a security of standing before Him in some way. That striving, that struggling, that angst, and it is because you can never know when you've gotten there. You can never know when you've done enough. You can never know when you've measured up. It's impossible to know. And he says, I've come to set you free of that kind of labor. And then also, those who are heavy laden, burdened like some beast of burden, and their legs shaking and about to collapse, and likely in the context, what he is referring here to are the near endless rules and regulations of the religious authorities of the time. The, the, the fences, the laws around the law that they had constructed over time like barnacles encrusted over, increasingly so around the hull of a ship. These fences around fences around fences, laws upon laws around the law to keep us from getting too close to the edge and actually breaking one. And it was burdensome, oh so burdensome. That which had been intended, a beautiful thing, God's laws, His statutes, His commands, meant to, for our flourishing in accord with how we are designed, this beautiful testimony now become burdensome for his people. Let me give you an example how some of these laws, there were certainly hundreds of dietary related ones, but I just, it's, it's, you know, the Lord's Day, it's Sunday, I'll tell you, this is how, what the rabbis would say. Okay? So, it's okay to write a two-letter word on the Sabbath, but not a three-letter word. Because if you go from two letters to three letters, that would be working. They work kind of like, what? Food preparation. You still you see this in Israel today in, in some Orthodox areas and in hotels so you don't offend people. Um, food preparation. Set it all out the night before. Don't do anything. Don't, don't do any form of preparation whatsoever. I mean, just set it all out the night before because doing anything else would be construed as labor, as working. And so that, you, that was, okay, so there's hundreds of things like that. I'm just giving you just a you know, glimpse of a sample into this sort of thing. And Jesus says, no, I've come to free you from this, to give you rest. I've come to free you from all this to get, to, to, for something that you were actually fitted for. Another yoke, a, a better yoke. If you're wondering if you, you know, I know few of us came from an agrarian background, you may not even know what a yoke is. It's, it's a wooden frame, uh, pretty far out in terms of its length, and, and oftentimes used, it would, it would have been strapped and put on beasts of burden, usually oxen, 
to enable them, harness them together so that they can pull an even heavier load in, in one direction as opposed to what they would be doing in separate directions or certainly uh, separately. So on their on their own. So that, that's this, the idea. Jesus saying, "I'm giving you this yoke." And notice that he's he's not saying, "I've come to free you from all yokes," but rather to to take the one off of you that you're being burdened by and put the one upon you that you were made for. My ways, my ways, um, a better one, a far better one. We saw this some weeks ago and Jesus says in, in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5 that he's come to fulfill the law, which means a lot, but among the things that it means is to show us its, its, its original intent, how deep it goes, how broad it goes. And as we wrestle with those kinds of things, we begin to see it's not just that he's come to reveal the full intent of the law, but our full need of him. Because we can't meet it. We can't measure up in and of ourselves. So it drives us to Him. So He's saying, trust me. Turn to me. I will be with you. And in my love for you, just as I promised long ago, I will put my law upon your very heart and make it your delight. Learn from me. My way is Easy. Why? Because it's what you're made for. My way is light. It's not heavy. It's not burdensome because it's what you were made for. And this rest that he promises, an everlasting rest, an ever-deepening rest, an eternal rest, but one that he means for us to taste of and experience even now. Even now. This sovereign king comes to give us this deep, deep rest. Now, I was thinking about this past week. In what ways do we see the fencing that Jesus is alluding to uh, here in, in Matthew 11? Do we see that in any way? Oh, yeah, we do. Oh, goodness sakes. How about in the news? Have you heard of the Pence rule? Be careful how I unpack this, okay? But, but it, it is some, are some things worth saying here? Mike Pence, vice president, okay? Uh, the, the news media, certain corners of the news media, have been just having conniption fits uh, about this and reporting. The, the, the Pence rule it goes roughly like this, that what he has decided some time ago, years ago, long before he was, uh, I think it was back when he was governor, um, uh, that he would not dine alone with another woman who was not his wife or attend functions that serve alcohol unless she was with her. Okay. And uh, the history of this, I mean, you've traced it back. There have been uh, a lot of uh, public figures who've adopted rules like that. And it goes back to Billy Graham back in, in the 40s. Okay? Um, now, I have no idea what the history for Mike Pence and his wife. I have no idea uh, what the, his, the personal story is as to why he adopted that rule. My, I got some guesses. I'll give you th three, and maybe it's a, a, a com combination of these three. One, it could be a recognition that as a public figure, he needs to be very careful in guarding his reputation. Two, it could also be a humble acknowledgement of, of his own sinful depravity. Three, it could be sensitivity to uh, concerns of his wife. And in the context of a marriage, that's what spouses do, at least what, what, what they should do, being sensitive to one another's concerns. Could be, you know, one of those, two of those, all three of those. I don't know. Is it a good idea? It could well be. It could be a very wise thing for the vice president 
to do. Um, and, and I would, it could well be a wise thing for him to insist that his staff do as, as well. You know, if you're going to be a part of this organization, this is something we all need to subscribe to. Here's what I would say, though. If you take that wise rule, that fence, and elevate it to an absolute on the level of God's law, that wise thing has now become a wrong thing. You have just bound the conscience in a way that is completely inappropriate. You can't do that. You can't do that. Let me give you some other examples. And some of these I've, you know, very recent, I've just encountered some of these. Um, fences, you know, if you really love Jesus, nobody says it quite like this, but this is what you mean. If you really love Jesus, this is what you'll do. This is how you'll vote. This is who you'll support. Um, this is what you'll watch or not. This is how you'll eat. Care for your body. Uh, this is what you'll read. This is how you'll parent. This is how you'll approach school. Now, are there wise positions being taken here? Are there things that we need to think through, biblical principles, and how to apply them? Yes! Yes! But the answers to those things are not as clean and cut and dry as you think they are. And, and we dare not, dare not elevate these things to the level of God's commands and then impose them on others and insist they live according to our rules. Now, you might be wondering at this point, was it really that big a deal? Let me give you some implications of what happens when we live this way, especially in a community context. What happens? The binding of the conscience, ultimately the replacing and nullifying of God's commands, um, an emphasis on externals as opposed to heart issues, a cheapening of the finished work of Jesus and the ongoing necessity of the work of the Spirit, and a judgmental attitude that divides us from those that we disagree with, and the pride and the division and schisms that come about. So you ask me, is this a big deal? Yes. It's a really big deal. Why then, if that's the case, is it so attractive? Legalism. Adding to God's commands. Why this perennial plague? You know, first century, 21st century, and every century in between. At least these two reasons. Fear. It's a scary world out there. And, and, and we want to protect ourselves. We want to put fences up to guard ourselves, be guarded and protected from stuff out there and those who we care for, so we're afraid. Pride. We believe God hasn't said enough. We believe he needs some help. And we're qualified to help him out. My friends, 
The king has come. His name is Jesus. To give us rest. To give us rest. Oh, that we would rejoice in the rest that he brings. Let me end with this. It's spring. You knew that. Baseball's in the air. Some of you are not too crazy about that, depending on how this past week went for you. Let me read you an excerpt here from uh, a few years ago, uh, back when a couple of dictators whose names you'll pick up here in a second were still around. Um, In Cuba, nothing is bigger than baseball, not even the cigars. Nothing, that is, except Castro. Recently, the 74-year-old dictator, and this is a few years ago, grabbed an aluminum bat and walked to the plate in an exhibition game against Venezuela. When Castro approached the batter's box, and I'm not making this up. This is you know, a Yahoo Sports news article. You're like, really? Dictators play baseball together. Well, yes, apparently in Cuba they do. Um, the president of Venezuela, Hugo Chavez, left his first base position to take the mound. His first pitch didn't even reach the plate, but Castro kept his bat on his shoulder. The next pitch was a strike, but Castro missed. A couple more balls and an attempted bunt later, the two heads of state were locked into a full count. Oh, the drama. Um, Castro watched the 3-2 pitch sail through the middle of the strike zone and listened to the umpire as he called him out. No, Castro said. (laughs) That was a ball. And he took first base. No one argued. (laughs) President Chavez said nothing. The opposing team said nothing. The umpire said nothing. Later, Castro joked, today just wasn't President Chavez's day. You know, it's hard to get a batter out when he has the power to overrule the umpire. Now, I know this sounds like a point I'm going to make that's so obvious, it's almost maybe nearly insulting to your intelligence. But Jesus is no dictator. Yes, he's all-knowing and all-powerful, but he is also all-faithful and merciful. Now I say that sounds, of course, of course, right, I got it, no no question asked. But here's here's the thing. Um, I think if, if you just look at the story of my life and how I live and how in your life and how you live, I wonder what story that would tell. Is it so obvious if you look at how we think and speak and act? Does it tell that story that Jesus is, in fact, this glorious king come, in fact, not as a dictator, arbitrarily making calls just just upon his whim, but to give us rest, this sovereign one, come to give us rest, Rest, the rest that we were made for and are crying out for. The the, the people, that first Palm Sunday, at the top of their lungs are crying out, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed he is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. They, they, They shouted far better than they knew. We know that. They shouted so much better than we knew. But but than they knew. But but we know. We have the benefit of, of, if you will, the hindsight of history. We know. So let's join in with the shouts. With all the fervency of our hearts. Let's pray together.
Lord Jesus, you are the Alpha and the Omega. You are the author and the finisher of the faith. You are the son of Abraham, the son of David. You are the anointed one. You are the Messiah, the Christ, the greater prophet, the greater priest, and the greater king. Yours is a knowledge and a wisdom beyond our fathoming, a power and strength beyond our capturing and and bending. Yours is a faithfulness that is beyond yielding and shifting and breaking. Yours is a mercy and kindness and love beyond forever our deserving. Hosanna. You're coming. That day was disruptive. You're coming into this world. We praise your name. It is disruptive. May we hear these claims that you have made about your Father and about yourself and be astonished. Make us worshipers. Make us followers. May we walk and rest in your ways, abiding by, and gladly so, by your commands. Gladly giving ourselves, putting ourselves under your fitted yoke. We pray this in your name. Amen.